Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that, well, this is like some breaking news here, but kind of the wildest thing happened to me thrifting this weekend. So I'm going to preface this by saying I literally have no interest in luxury brands whatsoever. I know very little about it. I mean, I know about the ethical and manufacturing implications of luxury and how it's changed and how luxury uses fast fashion tactics to sell people stuff and leverages influencers and leads people into overconsumption. And anyway, that's a whole other thing. But in general, I just like, it's never been important to me. I have been wanting a really nice bag, secondhand bag, leather, preferably like with a 70s aesthetic that I could use for the rest of my life, basically, just like take really good care of it, make it last forever. And, uh, you know, use it for like work stuff. So my laptop and notebooks and all of my like my calculator, all my work stuff would be in there sort of like almost like a briefcase, but not like, you know, a cute bag that carries my stuff. And then I would only need one and I would never need to buy one again, because let's face it, bags these days have gotten really terrible. So I was I was out thrifting and I saw this bag up on the top of a shelf. And from afar, I was like, huh, that looks like that could be a cute 70s leather bag that would be the size to hold my laptop and stuff. Like, I'm going to get it down and look at it. And I took it down and like the inside was sort of out and I turned it all around and I was looking at it and I was like, oh, this is a pretty cute bag. Like this is, this checks all the boxes. It's the right size. It's leather. It's got that seventies aesthetic. It's like simple and it's secondhand. Amazing. And also it's got a price tag on it for $7.99 while I open it. And it is in fact a coach bag (laughs) from the seventies. I verified with the serial number and all the other details as well. So yeah, I got a seventies made in the United States coach bag. It's like kind of like briefcase size uh, for $7.99 this weekend while thrifting. And I spent a bunch of time cleaning it up with saddle soap and leather conditioner. And it looks like beautiful, but like worn and just so perfect. And now I have a bag I can use for the rest of my life. So that was like a thrift store checking that item off the box kind of situation. Um, But trust me, there are good things at thrift stores. I promise. It just doesn't happen super fast, right? Sometimes you just luck into it and it's all about timing and looking and, you know, having that list running for a long time. Like a bag like that was on my list for a very long time. I did not care about a brand or anything like that. I just wanted it to be the right aesthetic and size. There you go. I found it. That was the longest intro ever, so I guess it's time for me to say, hey, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 194. Last week, we had our first ever clothes horse webinar and hangout session. It was so fun. The topic was why new clothes are kind of garbage, and I loved seeing you all get to know one another in the chat. I'm already thinking for the next one, we need to do something where I can create a doc where you all put in like your usernames on Instagram or something so you can all, you know, follow one another and stay in touch afterwards. So next time, I promise we'll do that. I'm definitely already thinking about what the next webinar will be. It will be at the end of March, probably like the last day or two of the month. I am pretty sure the theme is going to be 
how to talk to other people about slow fashion, but I'm still mulling it all over. Um, but also just, you know, more than, you know, having a theme, it's just awesome to talk to you all and hear what you have to say and answer your questions and see you all get to know one another as well, because community is my big focus this year and like forever, honestly. So anyway, uh, when people were registering for the webinar, I asked everyone to submit questions in advance if they had any. And boy, did y'all have some questions. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't cover them all in the webinar. And I knew that in advance because I was reading through these and I was like, oh my gosh, some of these are going to take me like 15 minutes to answer. I don't know what to do. And then a moment of inspiration struck and I printed them out and Dustin cut them up into strips for me, which was very nice because I was uh, cooking dinner. And I put them in this really cute little vintage sewing basket box that I have. And just periodically as we were moving through the presentation, I would just pull a question and answer it. Um, and that was really fun. But there were still a lot of questions to answer. And I was sort of like, what am I going to do with these? Then I thought there are enough long enough answers that this could actually be a whole episode and I still might not cover all the questions. So why not just make an episode out of it? So that is what this week's episode is about. Basically, I'm going to be answering all of these different questions from all of you. Um, you're going to hear about how I work to avoid overconsumption and impulse shopping when I'm thrifting, how I see the future of fashion being better, and so much more, so much more. I am pretty sure I got to everyone's question or pretty close. There were a couple where I didn't really understand the question, so I skipped those. Fortunately, a lot of the questions were kind of repetitive. So I think everyone who had a question will get what they were looking for here. And hopefully all of you who didn't have a question will be like, wow, now I'll never have that question because I have an answer and I learned something. So this is the first time I've done something like this, but it was kind of fun. And rather than like writing and like a whole script and stuff, I just like pulled the questions out and answered them like very conversationally and recorded it. So it was like a new kind of thing for me. Before we get into all of that, I have a really big announcement for you. So this is episode 194, which means we are getting really close to 200 episodes of Close Horse. And this is a really big deal for me because it means many, many hours of hard work on my part. So much like commitment to it that like, honestly, I, most of my relationships have lasted less time than close horse. I mean, like romantic relationships, not friend relationships. I mean, to be honest, I've worked at close horse longer than most of my jobs. This is a big deal to me. This is a big commitment. And this is a milestone. I'm so proud of myself for keeping that work going because well, lots of people started podcasts in 2020, most of those are no longer around. And so, yeah, I'm proud of myself for keeping this going. And that means we need to celebrate. So I spent a lot of time thinking like, what could we do? How could the 200th episode of Close Horse be super special? I'm always thinking of new ways to push myself creatively because, you know, like that's how I stay excited and motivated to do this work. Like, what could we do that we've never done before? You know, I thought about like, a retrospective clip show or an AMA or having a whole bunch of guests back. That all seemed fine, but it wasn't very exciting. Like it didn't, I don't know. It didn't seem like the creative challenge I was looking for. And then it clicked. Why not do a live show? After all, Close Horse is nothing without its community. A 200th episode, something as auspicious as this should involve the community. 
but it needs to involve as much of the community as possible. So why not a live virtual show that is free so as many people as possible can participate? It took a lot of research to figure out how we could pull that off. And I still kept hitting a wall. Like I just wasn't quite getting there. And then I just happened to have the right conversation with the right person. That right person was Jason, who's one of the owners of the Candy Factory, which is the co-working community here in Lancaster, where Dustin and I are very proud members. I We joined, I guess, back in the beginning of February, and it's been like so amazing to be in there. And I'm just excited to go in there and be around people every day. I've met so many awesome people. Really good for my brain and my heart. And Jason, I said, Jason, like, listen, you have a lot of experience with podcasts and stuff. Have you ever done anything like this? And then he was like, oh, this is what you need to do. And even better, he's going to let us do this at the candy factory um, kind of with figuring it all out. So we will be doing a live episode on Wednesday, April 18th. More details like the time and how to get to it and all this other stuff will be shared later, maybe in like the next week or so. Um, I'm just fine tuning that part of it, but that is the plan. We will be filming and recording it live at the Candy Factory here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It will stream on YouTube where you can participate in the conversation. It may be available on other platforms at the same time. We're just trying to figure out those details. Um, This episode will be part AMA, meaning Ask Me Anything, but also part retrospective. And that's where you all come in. Because this episode will also include video, and trust me, Dustin and I have some wild and fun video ideas that we're like brainstorming right now. Um, We also want to see videos from all of you. We want you to share your favorite Close Horse episode or what you've learned along the way or any other thoughts you have about slow fashion and why it matters to you. You can also just ask me a question because that's the other thing is I want you all to send me questions to answer in this episode. If video is not your thing, which I totally get, it's not 100% my thing either, you can send a recorded audio message instead. But please, we would love to get at least a few videos just to mix it up. And if you really, really hate the sound of your voice and you're like, I'm not doing a video, I'm not doing an audio recording, you can send me an email instead and we'll figure out, we'll have someone read it out loud, perhaps a dramatic reading of it. I don't know. Uh this is going to be a multimedia extravaganza. So any videos or audio messages or anything else must be submitted by April 1st because Dustin and I need time to edit and mix in preparation for the live episode. And he is basically like the week before the live episode, he is going to be recording an album in Baltimore all week. So we really need that first week of April to figure stuff out because the week of the live episode we're going to be having like dress rehearsals to get ready for it. There's a lot of like technological stuff, um, but I'm really excited about the challenge. Also nervous, but excited because if this goes well, we might do this more often. And to me, this is just like training and practice for me to come to your city and do a live episode right in front of you. In fact, the goal is that for the close horse get together, uh, Date TBD, probably late August, figuring that out this week as well. Uh, we're going to do a live with an audience episode of Close Horse during that time period. That'll be like my first one ever. So this is sort of like training me. Anyway, 
If you're going to send anything to be a part of the episode, please send it by April 1st so that we have that time. You can send it to amanda at closehorse.world. Please do not submit via DM. It is really hard to get the right quality of video or audio to download from Instagram or any other social media platform. You've got to send it via email. If your email is like, this is too big of a file, you can't send it, upload it to Google Drive or some other file sharing site and send me the link and I'll download it. All right. I'm so excited to see what you all send. And over the next month, I will also be sharing polls, other ways you can get, you can participate in the episode. We have a lot of big ideas and I just, I'm, I want this to be awesome because this community deserves something really awesome and fun. If you are interested in being the first to hear all of the details about where, when, and how it is all happening, you can sign up for the live episode mailing list using the link in the show notes. Um, I'm not going to email you about other stuff. This is specifically about the live episode and any other upcoming ways to participate. But this is going to be the best way for you to ensure that you know when and how it is all happening because you know what are the odds that Instagram's going to show you the post with all the details? They're probably pretty slim. So get on the email list, okay? All right. With all of that, let's jump into answering your questions. Alexis asked me, what section in a thrift store do you check out first? You know, some people say that astrology is how you can see a window into someone's personality and understand who they're compatible with and the things they might like and perhaps even figure out their destiny. And to be fair, I do believe in astrology to a certain extent, but I think you can tell a lot about a person, what they're into, uh, what gets them excited by where they go in a thrift store first. So for me, it is always the books. And that's because books, one, too many people sleep on the book section. Two, you all know by now that I am super inspired by vintage cookbooks, vintage children's books, vintage craft books, all things like that. But I also find regular books that I really just wanted to read. There are so many books at most of the thrift stores I visit. And you know, they all kind of, in my mind, the thrift stores that I visit uh, regularly kind of have their own specialty. Like, I'm like, oh, well, that's where I go to get awesome children's books. That's where the craft stuff is. That one has the cookbooks, or this one has, like, the contemporary books that I want to read. Rarely do I find a bookstore that has all of those categories covered, but there are some here and there. And, yeah, so I always go to the books first. Um this is always the section where I regret if I didn't get a cart. Uh, Dustin has this superstition, which I'm sure many of you share, where he thinks if you grab a cart when you enter the thrift store, you are cursing yourself and you won't find anything. And inevitably, I am 15 minutes into the book section and I am lamenting the fact that I don't have a cart. And then I'm like, should I run up front and get a cart or should I just keep carrying all these books? And then hopefully by then Dustin is coming to show me something because he usually heads off to the electronics and like movies and records first. So hopefully by then he's coming to show me something and I can say, hey, could you go get us a cart? But yeah, books followed by home goods. I love looking at the tchotchkes. I love looking through kitchen stuff. One of my best thrift scores 
in a really, really long time uh, was a couple months ago, right, literally right after we moved out here to Pennsylvania. I went to a thrift store pretty close to where we live. It's about 10 minutes away. It's called Main Street Closet. It's run by the Mennonite ladies, like a lot of the thrifts out here. And those thrift stores are awesome. And I found a practically pristine new condition Cuisinart food processor with like all of the attachments, even the original instruction book, like recipe book. And it was $15. And I have been, I've been wanting one of them forever like forever. I mean, I'm an avid cook. I cook dinner almost every night. And when I work from home, I also usually cook some sort of lunch for us. And for so long, I thought like, wow, if I had a food processor, it would save so much time and I could make other things like more sauces. I love making sauces. And yeah, there it was, $15, brought it home, tested it out. It was great. And I have been using it almost every day since then. And it has really expanded the amount of things I've been cooking. Like I've been making a lot of condiments and whatnot because I can get it like really blended and delicious. So yeah, home goods, always next, especially kitchen, dishes, that kind of stuff. And I also really love to check out office supplies, stationery, and craft supplies. Um, Out here in Pennsylvania, all of the Mennonite-run thrift stores have amazing craft sections with full-on craft kits. I, a few weeks ago, scored not one, not two, but three vintage latch hook kits, which I've been working on at night to relax me. Very, very fun. One is making a huge, or at least to me, a huge. That's probably about two by four, like two feet by four feet rug that is a big-eyed kitten and puppy drawing. Um, really, so that's the one I'm working on right now. It's huge. Um, but so out here, you find a lot of really amazing craft supplies, like craft kits, like I said, fabric. I needed some hook and eyes to do some repairs. Easy. Found a pack of those. Um, thread, all kinds, you name it, beads. It's all there. And when it comes to stationery and office supplies, like who really wants to go buy file folders and things like that brand new, right? And I usually can find that kind of stuff as well as like notepads, envelopes, any kind of like binder sort of thing you would ever need. And I here and there find some really incredible vintage greeting cards and stationery, which I often scan and use for other purposes. So those are my favorite sections. For me, clothing is actually the last thing I check. Um, And usually when I am checking clothing, I check pajamas first because I'm always on the hunt for nightgowns. And like, you know, I'm still trying to find the world's most perfect bathrobe. I haven't yet. Um, Someday it will cross my path just like that Cuisinart. But yeah, that's my order. Um, And then, you know, anything else, I guess I pass on the way to wait in line. But there are some sections I don't even check that often unless I'm looking for something specific. That was a really good question, Alexis. Thanks for asking that and making me think about it. Okay, so Kate asked, and this is one I answered in the session, but I felt like we should have it here on the podcast too. Do you have any thoughts about changing our actions as regarding overthrifting? I struggle with keeping myself from buying too much because I still haven't adjusted to the abundance that's in the shops. My brain still thinks it's 1990 and you should buy the craft project item right now because it will be gone next time. While I logically know there is always another box of beads or whatever now. So that is a really good question, Kate. And I was really glad that I drew this one out of my uh, question box 
while we were in the webinar because this is a question I get a lot. This is something that I think about a lot in my own personal life. It's definitely something Dustin and I discuss quite a bit because we are thrifters. And we usually go thrifting every week, not even necessarily with the end goal of buying anything per se. Um, Sometimes there are legitimate things that we need. Sometimes we're looking for gifts. Sometimes I happen upon books and paper goods and things like that that I'm going to use for clothes horse. But generally, I'm not going out there with the sole purpose of buying things. And It's easy to get really sucked into a lot of impulse purchases when you're thrifting because, as Kate pointed out, there is this sense, not even of scarcity, which is one part of it, right? If you find a really cool vintage 70s cookbook, will you find that same one again? Maybe, maybe not. But beyond the scarcity idea of it is the, you might, if you think about it too hard, you're going to lose lose the opportunity to have that thing, right? And I think that that is where, at least for me and Dustin, where it sometimes puts us into a weird corner that almost makes us feel like frantic, like we're losing all sense and we're just going to buy things that we don't need and like then bring them home and have nowhere to even put them, right? And that's a conversation we have to have a lot. Like, our approach, our approach to thrifting is basically go through the store, put everything you like in the cart. And this is something I've been doing since I was a teenager and first began thrifting on my own. Walk through the store, grab everything that is interesting that you think is a strong contender for you to buy, um, and then find a corner, try things on, discuss them, think about them, take as much time as you need. And I actually really love doing this with Dustin or other friends that I'm thrifting with. It's kind of, to me, almost the most fun part where we talk about it. Well, if you get that, what are you going to wear it with? When are you going to wear it? Do you already have that? And it might be better to leave it for someone else. Um, Do we actually need this random thing? Where is it going to live in our house? What are we going to do with it? Oh, it's a gift. Okay, when are you going to give it? Where are we going to store it? That kind of stuff. Like really talking it through because sometimes you see something, you get into that like thrifting mind space where you're, it's a rush, right? And you're in it and there is this sense of urgency and excitement. And you, you put a lot of stuff in your cart that you probably ultimately would not buy. And I think, I think even when we're online shopping, we tend to do that, right? My friend would always joke, I've got 25 carts going at any given time on various different websites. She said, you know, if I see something, I just kind of put it in there to think about later or remind me. And I think, you know, retailers are on onto us doing that. That's why they send us all those abandoned cart emails to remind us of that time we looked at something, even if it was a long time ago. And it's also why they add these sort of time limit deals, right? Where it's like, oh, well, if you place this order in the next 12 hours, you'll get 20% off or you'll get free shipping or but this offer ends soon, that kind of stuff, like these expiration dates on the deal of it all that force us to stop thinking about it and just make the purchase, right? Thrifting kind of has that sense of pressure, that time sensitivity built into it already because if you leave that store and you didn't buy the thing, odds are high, 
that it won't be there the next time you go back. And for those of us who are long-term, lifelong thrifters, we have experienced this firsthand many, many times. And actually, it's those of us who thrift the most that have, I don't know, the most fear of losing out because we have in the past. And that's a hard, that's a hard feeling to get over. But I think taking that time at the end to talk, whether it's to someone who's with you or to yourself, would I be okay if I came back and this wasn't here? How does this really fit into my life? Do I really need this? You know, it's like I said, it's something that Dustin and I go through all the time. Um, I actually, like I said, love doing that exercise with him. And I think it can be valuable for all of us to do to do the cart sort at the end. And I know many of you who are pro thrifters are like, yeah, I do that every single time. But I promise that that's a new idea to a lot of other people. So I like to put that out there. And like Kate said, there are certain things where there will always be more, right? Not everything. Like that Cuisinart food processor, I did not take that over into the corner and think about it because I knew I had been wanting it for a really long time. I had been keeping my eyes peeled, which brings me to the other thing that I do that helps me keep my thrifting in check and stay focused, which is that I keep a running list in my phone of the things that I am looking for. Because as any super experienced thrifter will tell you, the moment you are looking for something, it seems in the world of thrifting, the moment it seems to disappear from every thrift store out there. But you will have very clear memories of seeing it everywhere you went before you decided it was something you need. Um, I can't say that that's science-based, but it is something I've experienced a lot. So I know that when I need things and I want to get them secondhand, it's just going to take some time. Obviously, not everything in our lives can wait, but me finding a trash can for our bedroom, that can wait, right? Uh, me needing a Cuisinart, that can wait. So those kinds of things I keep a running list and whether it's like, I need a laundry basket, I'm looking for a hamper, I need some more hangers, I need an extra pair of full-size sheets, what have you, they're in my phone and I will look at it before we go in the thrift store, you know, and update it as I do find things. And I think that that helps me stay focused and not get all caught up in the weeds of buying like random tchotchkes that are cute but I really don't have room for. That said, of course, one of the thrills of thrifting is seeing things you never thought you would see in real life or seeing something that you didn't know existed until that moment and learning about it. And sometimes I buy those things and sometimes I don't. Some, I mean, Dustin and I talk about this all the time. Sometimes the best part of thrifting is learning the existence of something you didn't know about and then going home and going down a weird rabbit hole of it. Or I love seeing toys from my childhood and then going and looking for ads for them on Pinterest and reminiscing, you know, or finding the commercials on YouTube. So thrifting can serve a lot of different purposes for us outside of acquiring stuff. I always say my favorite thing about yard sales is seeing people with their stuff. Like I love the sociological exploration of it all and kind of making up stories about those people, thinking about those people and how those items fit into their life. You know, the gifts that they never even opened or that they got from someone who they didn't really like and they never used 
or the time they thought they were going to get really into baking. You know, like I, I love all of that. I love the humanity of it all. And so I also think for me, thrifting is more about seeing people, observing people, observing people's stuff. I also like to go thrifting because honestly, it inspires me for a lot of the stuff I talk about here. It makes me recognize trends. Uh, It often is the jump off for me researching something even deeper. You know, for example, seeing Target stuff in every thrift store I went to with the tags on and so much of it made me start thinking about the impact of Target and also Walmart and the sheer volume of clothing that they're selling every year and how they are actually some of the biggest players in the fast fashion game. I don't think I would have gotten there if I hadn't been out there just looking at everything. And so I guess that's the other thing I would say. Thrifting is more than just stuff. It's an experience. But Ultimately, there is stuff everywhere, and it's important that we take that moment to slow down and think about what's in our carts. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room, all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Rachel asked, this is sort of on the same subject. How do we have honest conversations with ourselves about spending restrictions, resistance, and restraint? I can't help it. I love alliteration. So do I, Rachel. How can we do that so that we can see less is more when it comes to our financial wellness? So, Rachel, anyone who has taken Small Biz Big Pick or works with me as a client knows that I love spreadsheets. <laughs> and sometimes people hear the word spreadsheet and they kind of shut down because it sounds hard. Uh, it sounds like you need to know formulas or be an accountant or go to business school. But really, 
all a spreadsheet is, is a place where you look at a whole bunch of numbers together or anything else. I have a spreadsheet that's just a list of the vintage cookbooks I have, so I don't buy one that I already own. There's another way to minimize your thrifting. Keep keep lists of the things you already have. Um, anyway, spreadsheets can serve a lot of purposes. I think that seeing where your money's been going in black and white, right in front of your face, even totaled up, is often the best way to get a grasp on your spending. So I actually answered this this question in the webinar, and I talked about how, you know, many of you know who have been listening for a long time, uh, the first 10 years of my career, I worked for Urban Outfitters, and there is a system that they use. It keeps track of inventory and sales and returns, and it's where orders are written. It's where things are received. It's it's so many things. So many people who work for the larger company as a whole use many different parts of it to get data. And this is very standard at just about any retailer, like a big retailer. There's going to be some massive system. And one thing you could do is you could go into like three menus deep and type in your employee number and you could see everything you had ever purchased and how much money you spent in glorious black and white. Well, really green and black. That's the color scheme of this computer system. You could see it all. And my coworkers and I would always joke like, I don't want to see it. I don't want to know. But logging in there and seeing it uh, really helped me see how I'd worked for this company for a long time that was underpaying me. And I was giving so much of that money back to them every week. Ultimately, meaning that I was being paid even less by them, right? And I'm glad when I finally got up the gumption to log in and look at that because that was a big leap forward in my in my process of buying less stuff, right? And that was a long time ago. But the other thing I will say is that years ago, I took a small business class in Portland, uh, put on by Mercy Corps. F- highly recommend for any of you who live in the Portland area signing up for that class. Uh, I want to say it's like six sessions, like 150 bucks or something. And it really helps you with a lot of the legal business planning kind of stuff for starting a small business. It's not going to teach you about branding and marketing and things like that, but it will teach you how to file the right paperwork and how to keep track of your expenses and how to write a business plan. And our first session, the the instructor said, you know, hey, this is going to be the hardest class of all because today we're going to talk about money. And we're all so uncomfortable with money. We're kind of taught to not talk about it. But we also, we get a lot of angst from money. We worry about it a lot. We worry about it so much. It's such a source of stress that many of us are really, really unaware of our financial health. Like, honestly, she asked us, like, who here in the room knows your credit score? And, like, one person raised their hand. That person was not me. Uh, okay, well, he, who here knows exactly how much money you have in your checking account right now? Very few people raise their hands. Who here knows what your credit card debt is right now? No one raised their hand. And... Our homework for that class was to go home and do all of these things. And for me, it was an incredible experience because for one, I had always assumed I had bad credit. I actually had good credit. So that was incredible to learn. It got me comfortable 
with looking at where my money had gone in the last month, rent, eating out, utilities, you know, health insurance, all these bills that I had, some of them, you know, not fun and not really optional and others, you know, bills I'd sort of created, right? And seeing where my money went actually helped me think about where I'd like it to stop going and putting some parameters in place for me. And I will say like in this day and age, there are all kinds of apps you can use to track your spending, to set goals for yourself, to be shut off when you've spent too much money in that specific category, whether it's like eating out or buying clothes, or you can just get into, sign into Google, open a Google sheet and start typing things in and setting some rules for yourself. So you don't have to spend money to figure out how to not spend money, but you can as well. And I think the most important part of financial literacy is not understanding how stocks or Bitcoin work, but rather is understanding where your money goes every month, even if you only do that exercise for last month or the last 90 days or the next three months, I think it can give you an idea of the rules you want to set in place for yourself. And I will say that even though going on a budget sounds really dry and unfun, it actually makes you feel really good. It kind of, I don't know, if you're like me and your biggest competitor slash critic is yourself, uh, well, there you go. You get to do that all the time then in terms of where you spend your money. If it's the not knowing that keeps you awake at night, well, now you will know. And so that will remove some stress for you. If you feel like you work all the time and you're getting paid, but you don't know where your money goes, this is how you find out. And honestly, I do this exercise with the small businesses I work with too. It's a similar thing where we literally just list out every expense. We get into the credit card statements, the bank statements. We look at where the money's going and we see where there are opportunities to change. So yeah, I recommend setting a couple hours aside and just making a list whether it is using one of these apps that are out there or opening up a spreadsheet and totaling it up there. Um, I think that spending less, buying less, improving our own financial health, it just starts with knowing where we are right now. And I used to, I joke all the time in Small Biz Big Pick about a time in my life before online banking was the norm. And by the way, my bank was like, I swear, the last bank ever to get an app and let me do deposits with my phone. Like they were really far behind everyone else. But so for a long time, they had this service where if you wanted to know your account balance or see recent transactions, you'd call this number and you just type in your account number and then it would give it to you. And like, I actually ended up memorizing my checking account number because I would do this so often. And every time I would call, I'd be so filled with anxiety as I was typing in that account number. And then when the little voice told me how much money was in my account, like I would be like holding my breath waiting for this. But when she told me what my balance was, I was like, ah, ah, it feels so much better. Cause I had recurring nightmares that I would go to buy something and my card would be turned down and then I would call my bank and there would be like a negative amount of money. And so there actually is also just this intense relief and maybe, I know money can't buy happiness, but knowing how much money you do or do not have can buy you a little bit of, I don't know, calmness, a tiny bit of joy, just relief. There you go, relief. Uh, so knowing, man, just know. 
I hope I answered your question, Rachel. I'm sure many of you who are listening have your own tricks, apps you use, suggestions. So if you do have something you think everybody else would enjoy hearing about, send it my way. Okay, one last question from this section. Cecilia asked, now that we know clothes are kind of garbage, what now? What advice do you have to help wade your way through the garbagey stuff to find your personal style? Whew, that is a hard one. Um, I will start by saying you got to skip trends. For me, the biggest game changer for me in terms of the clothes I was buying or the, I don't know, the constant need for clothes that I was feeling, for me, it was no longer working in the fashion industry anymore where new clothes, they were part of the job. I had to know the trend before the trend arrived. I had to be aware of the trends as they were just beginning. And often by the time a trend became, well, a trend, I was over it. And in order to, I don't know, appear to be good at my job, I guess, I had to constantly be ahead of the trends in terms of how I dressed, which meant I needed to be buying clothes all the time. Maybe not in the beginning of my career. Honestly, in the beginning of my career, you know, I have talked about this here on the podcast before. I definitely felt a lot of imposter syndrome because most of the people I worked with, and I'm, I'm saying like 95, 96, 97% of the people I worked with came from money. They came from a much nicer background than me. And so while they were also probably underpaid, like I was, they probably didn't have student loan debt or they got help from their parents. I worked with a lot of people early in my career whose parents paid their rent, right? So they had money to spend on things. They certainly didn't have a kid like I did. So they were just in a better financial situation. And everybody I worked with wore very expensive clothes. It's one interesting phenomenon of working in fashion, specifically in fast fashion, is that the people who work in the offices, you know, buying, planning, designing, working in production, they rarely wear clothes from that company. They often buy fancier, more expensive clothes from other brands. And I think part of that is like, you know, creating an illusion or, you know, reinforcing one's wealth. Uh, I think it also is that, you know, to be honest, like people kind of know the stuff they are making that the company's selling isn't that great, right? I know for me, I didn't make enough money to buy clothes from even, even from where we worked. So I said, you know what? I have always worn vintage clothes. I've always been a thrifter. That's just going to continue to be my thing. I'm going to stop thinking about designers and luxury. And I am going to keep wearing cool vintage stuff that is interesting to me. And when I made that decision, it actually relieved this pressure that I was feeling. And it actually made me feel more confident. And it's interesting because years later, people would be like, wow, I always thought you just had like the best, most unique style that you weren't wearing what everyone else was. And you weren't just buying expensive things. Like you have this eye, you have this creative vision. And that makes me really feel, feel really good in retrospect. That's been my personal style direction for a really long time. But there were certain periods in my life I specifically think of like when I was working at Nasty Gal, even when I was working at Mod Cloth where we 
were really encouraged to wear mod cloth clothes every day. And especially when I was working at Newly um, before the pandemic began, where I felt this pressure to be wearing new clothes, uh, trendy clothes, being ahead of that trend. And in that situation, that's when I found myself buying a lot of clothes that I barely liked and barely wore and sold most of at the beginning of the pandemic and, you know, funded this podcast off of them. And what was great is being out of fashion then in 2020 and not going back to it actually made me say, okay, I'm going to go back to who I am. I don't feel that pressure anymore. I literally do not care about fashion trends except for like from a, hmm, that's interesting, like sociological perspective. I am just going to wear clothes that I think are cool and that I like, and I'm going to lean into what my personal style is. And so for me, that is, you know, of course, I love prints, I love vintage, I love florals, I love cottagecore kind of aesthetic, I love Laura Ashley, um, every once in a while I want to dress like I'm Stevie Nicks, I mix this stuff all up, sometimes I look like I'm going to the Renaissance Fair, and in a good way, and so I just wear what I like, and what's interesting is like when you realize what you like, which... For some people, like me, who are maybe a little bit older, uh, I've had a lot of practice in figuring out what I like, right? I have worn things that I didn't like, and now I know, and I'm honest with myself about it. Like, I don't wear jeans. I don't like them for myself. I think they look great on other people. I'm going to stop trying to buy jeans, right? Like, that was a big turning point for me, and I haven't bought pants in years because of that, and I saved myself a lot of money and just, like, wasteful behavior, right? So some of us have had a lot of time to try and explore. Others of us are younger, or we have been in a situation where we didn't have that freedom to explore. And in that way, I would say, like, if you're in that position, take some time to just look at clothes, look at clothes on the internet, or go out IRL, go to the thrift store and try on stuff that's way outside your comfort zone. Make Pinterest boards, seriously. I think sometimes for me, one of the best ways for me to figure out what I was into. Well, it was two. One was Tumblr, where I would like save everything and screenshot things that I loved, right? Just like aesthetically, it wouldn't even necessarily be pictures of clothes, but it would just be pictures of people in clothes um, to start to understand like what I liked. And also just creating like a gazillion Pinterest boards of different ideas of things I liked and, you know, collecting those images. One, it kind of gives you a little bit of that shopping feeling, which is really nice um, because you don't buy anything, but you get to collect and peruse. And also you can start to see kind of the profile of yourself emerge. You know, when you see what you've been saving the most, you can see what kind of colors you like, what kind of prints, what kind of silhouettes. And focusing, focusing your energy there and breaking out of the noise, not looking at, you know, not thinking about trends, not thinking about what's in or out of style, because who literally cares? If you love skinny jeans, don't let someone take them away from you. You know what I mean? Just be what makes you happy. That's where the strongest personal style comes from. The kind that people talk about when you're not around admiringly, if that's a goal that you have. But also, it's what keeps you from buying stuff that you only wear once or twice. Because I think often, I don't think, I know, I know this from my own experience, when I felt the pressure of a trend that I needed to be a part of, for me, usually because I needed to show that I knew of it at work, 
I would end up buying these things that I felt wildly uncomfortable in, that were not who I was, that I only wore once or twice. And they just sat in my closet. I mean, I would buy things that I never actually wore out of the house because I just couldn't get myself to feel right. And it was because I had bought things in the first place that just weren't me. So here's my advice for avoiding the garbage as much as possible, right? One, skip out on trends, ignore them. Do what you need to do to put put the earmuffs on, cover your eyes and ignore them. Uh, Two, get to know who you are, uh, whether that is like creating boards on Pinterest, saving photos on your phone, making lists, kind of looking at your closet with a critical eye and deciding what you do or do not like. And figuring out what's what do those things have in common? If you are stuck there, get a good friend to come over. I will tell you this. You might think that you don't have a personal style that's very defined. I guarantee if you ask your best friend, uh, they know they know what it is. They have a look in mind for what you're always wearing. And that can probably help you as well. Maybe ask a couple close friends. So yeah, know what you do or do not like and kind of like who you are and where you take inspiration. Next, I would just say, you know, this is the hardest habit to break. Don't impulse shop because you saw a TikTok or a post on Instagram from an influencer. Like take that moment to think. And when I say moment, I mean, it could be like hours, days, months, whatever you need, to decide if you really like that thing, if you would really wear it, if it really is who you are. Because those things kind of get in our heads and make us think like, oh, maybe I could wear like uh, a bathing suit over a pair of jeans to go to a club, you know, but you're not really going to do that, right? So just like thinking about those things. Um, When it comes to buying new things, whether they're secondhand or new, I always ask like, Does this fit in with other things I have? What can I already wear with it? Um, Do I need to go out and buy all this other stuff to support, sort of support it? Like, does it need a new pair of shoes that I don't have? Does it need a strapless bra or some other specific undergarments? Are there other layering pieces that need to go with it? Like, if, if it needs the whole cast of characters to be wearable for you, it's probably a skip because not just because you'll have to buy a bunch of stuff, but because it doesn't actually fit in with your personal style in the first place. Like if if it were an organic fit, meaning something you would wear a lot that would play well with your wardrobe, you would have, you would already have all the things that would support it. So I know that's like bad news for the retailers of the world that I'm telling you, you don't need to go buy the head to toe outfit just to have the thing. But that is, that is a true story. And I often find when I see something that I think is really cool, and I realized that I would need, I don't have shoes that work with it or a bra or a jacket or a slip or what have you. Oh, wait, that's because it doesn't look like anything else in my closet. And it's not really like who I am. You know, I'm just getting caught up in a whim right now. And the last thing I would just say is be honest with yourself about what you'll really wear and how much time you're willing to put into caring for something. For example, If something says dry clean only, well, I'm going to tell you that unless it's leather or suede, you can probably hand wash it and line dry it yourself. It might need some extra steaming or a little extra care, but I avoid the dry cleaner. If you're not willing to do that, if you don't have that kind of time, you're like, steam it, forget it. Don't buy it. You know, if it's 
if you live somewhere really humid and hot, don't buy yourself some like long sleeve polyester thing that's going to make you feel gross all day. In fact, if polyester makes you feel stinky all day, certain, especially certain polyesters to me, like it's just like, forget it. I was wearing a thrifted polyester dress the other day and I was like, oh my God, I can smell my own armpits all day. Uh, if something's going to make you feel less than great, fabric-wise, length-wise, silhouette-wise, don't buy it. Just don't buy it. You don't need it. Something I cite is I wear a lot of like really flowy kind of dresses because like, to be honest, I've had a lot of stomach problems my whole adult life. It was First it was celiac disease, then it was complications from celiac disease, and it's getting a little bit better, but one thing I learned is I didn't want to wear anything bodycon or tight on my stomach because who knows what size my stomach was going to be in any given moment of a day, and moving away from those kinds of clothes actually made me just feel, I don't know, far more comfortable than I would have been, even though my stomach still hurt. So just being realistic with yourself and knowing that things that don't make you feel comfortable, you don't have to wear. And uncomfortable can be physically uncomfortable or mentally uncomfortable. So give yourself some grace. Be honest with what you will feel good wearing and skip everything else. And I think you'll be surprised by how little you'll end up buying. And of course, anytime you buy something, does this seem like it's gonna have a lot of longevity in your wardrobe? Does it fit with a lot of other things you have? Can you imagine different outfits involving this item? Um, And let's be honest with ourselves, not like when we have to get a a bridesmaid dress and we assure ourselves we're totally going to wear it again and we never do. Like, let's be honest with ourselves. Think about how it fits into things and where we could wear it and a variety of ways and places we could wear it. And are we willing to put in the investment of time to repair it? Can we repair it if something comes up? Would we love this thing enough to spend money to pay someone to repair it? These are all questions to ask. And you know, going back to the money thing, it's all about being honest with ourselves. Like we gotta be honest with ourselves about money. We gotta be honest with ourselves about what we will actually wear and when and how often. And we gotta be honest with ourselves about when we are just getting caught up in a trend or a whim, often influenced by something we saw on the internet um, or on a, in a, on a television show or in a movie or just out in, out in the crowd. It's okay to change and try new things, but I know for myself, I would often say like, oh, well, you should try something new. You should get out of your comfort zone. But what I was really doing most of the time was going so far outside of my comfort zone or who I am that I was just spending money on something that would soon become a burden and even kind of depress me when I saw it in my closet. Megan asks, what are a few things in hindsight that you would have loved to see implemented in your past roles and companies that you think you'd see progress from today? And what are the biggest opportunities for brands today to pivot into responsible or sustainable models? I guess I'll start by saying, Megan, um, this could be a series of episodes in itself. So I'm going to actually put a pin in this question, like literally put it somewhere, pin it so I can come back to it again in a much larger way. So today you're going to get the more compressed version of it. Here's what I see as one of the biggest problems right now. Are you ready? Um, So last week, uh, a lot of 
I don't know, people sent me screenshots of articles that were basically like from the financial landscape, you know, like stocks, that kind of thing, uh, where investors, people who are experts in investment and stocks you should pick are like, you should not buy stock in URBN, which is the parent company of Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, and Free People, um, because their sales are bad, right? Their profitability is bad. The forecast does not look good for them. And I'd kind of known that that was happening because, you know, of the many weird things I do to get my the gears in my brain turning to inspire me about things I want to talk about here and just, you know, educate myself. I read a lot of the sort of uh, earnings call transcripts, which are like when companies every quarter, they'll have a little like a phone call. Uh, It's really more like a big presentation where they talk about their business and the results. And it's for it's for shareholders and investors, right? So I, I like to read the transcripts for these calls for a lot of different brands out there to kind of see what they're doing. And what we're really seeing right now with Urban Outf- with Urban, and its sales and a lot of other big fast fashion companies out there is we are seeing that their consumer base is kind of being pulled away by two different, I don't know, let's say approaches to buying clothing. Okay, so the first... The first group of these people who are pulling away from Urban Outfitters and so many other brands are they're shopping at Shein. They're shopping at Timu. They maybe are buying clothes even on Amazon. They are looking for less expensive clothes. They want variety, which we know Shein launches 5,000 new styles every day. They want low prices. Of course, that's what these companies offer. And they want a lot. They want it fast and they want infinite selection and they want ease, right? And Therefore, Shein is taking a lot of customers from all of these other brands who have been playing in the fast fashion space, sort of survived the fast fashionification of everything by leaning into that fast fashion model and making it work, making it work being in quotes, because I'm not really sure if they are, but they've been trying and they've been able to make the math, math enough to keep going, right? Shein is a big threat for them because I will tell you, a place like Urban Outfitters can't offer Shein pricing, right? Which is shocking when you consider both companies have exploitation and waste and low quality product built into them. But the way that Urban Outfitters works, specifically having stores, designers, warehouses, all of these things already makes it impossible for it to compete with Shein. And furthermore, everything you not, that Urban Outfitters brings into the into the United States, they pay duties and freight on in a way that Shein does not. Shein does not pay duties on the product that it ships into the United States. And that alone does not make it a level playing field, right? So, okay, so all of these brands, they're seeing stuff chipped away by Shein and other similar, you know, Cider, Amazon, Timu, what have you. The other half of customers that they are losing are people who are saying, hey, I know the environmental impacts of fast fashion. I know that you are fast fashion or the quality of product you are offering is abysmal, right? I I don't want to buy into any of this. And instead, I'm going to shop secondhand. You know, we live in the golden era of shopping secondhand online, Depop, ThreadUp, Poshmark, Mercari, Vinted, this has changed the way people buy clothing, right? These people also may be renting clothing. 
They might be thrifting. They might be going vintage shopping IRL. They might be doing clothing swaps. These may not even be people who are thinking top of mind about the environmental impact of clothing, but are just thinking about like, uh, like the stuff you're selling me isn't that great and it's overpriced for what it is. I could buy something better for the same amount of money or less by buying it secondhand, right? So we see a lot of people walking away from these brands. You know, for Urban, you know, they have Urban Outfitters, right? And obviously, like, no doubt, Shein is really cutting into their customer base because it's young. We also have a lot of people within that age group who are, you know, more ethically and environmentally minded who are not interested in what they have to sell either. But even we, when we look at anthropology and free people, these are customer bases that have a lot more money. They are opting for brands that make better stuff for them. They are opting to buy vintage. They are opting to buy from sustainable brands. They may even be opting to buy luxury. They're probably not being chipped away as much by say Shein, but there's a little bit of that happening there. So when I look at these, like a a company like Urban, but this could be, we could fill in anybody else here. H&M, also struggling financially. Zara, uh, any store at the mall, any department store, Nordstrom, Macy's, what have you. These brands found that the only way for them to survive and perhaps thrive from 2008 forward was to get into fast fashion, to change what they did and speed it up and make things cheaper and all the other things that we know of as fast fashion. That's how they made it work. They've hit a wall now where they are being beaten by the fastest fashion of all. And they're also starting to see their sales be eroded by people who are realizing that fast fashion isn't a great deal. Now, These brands have a couple options here, right, for how they could turn their business around. One is that they could go the direction of Shein, which is pretty much impossible for any of them. I mean, I can't even imagine how they would make that work. And I'm sure they know that. But to them, that probably seems easier than the other option, which I actually think is easier, which is to get on board with doing things in a better way, right? To actually use sustainable materials, to actually slow down the process of creating garments and make them fit better and make them better quality and offer better product to the customer. In fact, going that route, really leaning into circularity as much as possible would differentiate them from Shein and would lift them out of this race to the bottom and actually probably give them a unique place out there on the landscape of fashion, right? Where they could actually win people back and succeed. Now, it will be interesting to me to see what these brands will do. Will they continue to just do what they're doing right now and lose? Will they try to get more Shein-like? Because they certainly all tried to get more Forever 21 and H&M-like, right? Or will they lean into this other direction, right? Of actually doing things the right way. Because... Here's the problem, and it's actually, you're going to find me saying this over and over again as I answer the next set of questions with you. The reason that there haven't been huge leaps ahead in fiber-to-fiber fabric textile recycling or that there aren't a ton of reputable factories, reputable factory inspection processes, uh, high-quality sustainable clothing, so-called sustainable, whatever you want to call it, in a wide range of sizes is because very few people are doing it. And to solve these problems, to make them affordable, 
to make them the norm requires these big brands getting on board. It is a problem of scale. And so when very few companies are doing something like actually using recycled textiles or actually creating product that lasts for a long time or actually ensuring that workers in their factories are paid a living wage and work under good conditions, all these things, these things drive the cost up and are actually really hard to run a business doing because no one in a big way has stepped in and made that the norm yet. And so none of these things that could change our lives, even as people who wear clothes, are the norm because, and are like not even going to get to be the norm until big brands get on board with it and make it more possible, make it more widespread, right? And I think it's important to remember, like, if, if you went to a factory in 2007, with the kind of pricing that retailers are pushing for right now in clothing, they would have laughed and laughed and laughed at you. But what happened is over the period of, what, 15, 16, 17 years, retailers, big brands, made it the norm to have these really low prices. Polyester technology, synthetic fabric technology, increased, and suddenly all kinds of synthetic fabrics that feel like all kinds of things, that have all kinds of different qualities to them, different sensory qualities to them, they were able to be developed because brands were looking for more and more fabric that was inexpensive but felt expensive, right? And so the industry stepped up to make that happen. Well, if the industry said, from now on, we want 50% of our fabric to be made of fully recycled textiles, fiber to fiber, no, nothing else added. Okay, now we want it to be 60. Now we want it to be 75. Now we want it to be everything. I can assure you that the technology would become more would become more efficient and more commonplace, and the pricing for that kind of stuff would go down. But we're not there right now because a brand like H&M or, you know, Zara or what have you might release a little tiny collection that has some recycled fabrics in it, fabrics that are made from, you know, recycled plastic bottles, etc. They're not making a full line of fully recycled textiles. They're not making everything out of more sustainable fabrics. They're not adding extended sizes and everything, just in a few things. But if they made all of these things the norm, they would be the norm and they would be accessible to everyone. That stuff trickles down. Suddenly you could go to Target and get fully recycled t-shirts in all sizes, right? And all colors and every aesthetic you wanted. And it would last for a long time and you wouldn't need to buy another one in a month because it fell apart. If this became, then it becomes the norm by a big brand. First, it just takes one big brand actually getting on board in a full way, and they will all follow because we saw this happen with fast fashion. And right now, the industry is at a turning point where it can decide to be Shein or it can decide to care about the people on the planet and make that the norm, right? That's where we are right now. So when I think about stuff that I wish would have become the norm earlier in my career, as Megan asks, that we would see real progress on right now. I mean, one would be sizing. Are you freaking kidding me? It is 2024 right now. And it's still really, really hard to find clothes clothes beyond a size extra large in women's, much less a 4X, a 5X, a 6X, a 7X. 
Also, where is the technology in terms of making things fit better? Because even if you're a so-called straight size, good luck finding something that fits you and makes you feel comfortable. Seriously, the fit is worse than ever. Technology could be making that better, could have made it the norm. If instead of maybe, I don't know, messing around and creating AI prints, why are we using AI to make fit better, to make predicting fit better, making people, helping people find their size easier, right? These are things I would have loved to see and in like a lot of work in 10 years ago, even fit, extended sizing. And beyond that, I would have loved to see the industry never speed up in the first place in the way it did. You know, I think we cannot underscore the impact that launching four times as many styles and expecting stuff to sell twice as fast and be around for half as long. We cannot underscore the impact that has had on the quality of clothing, the waste and carbon footprint of the fashion industry, and ultimately a trickle-down economic impact on customers who have to keep buying stuff to replace the stuff that doesn't last. All the workers in the factories, in the warehouses, in the stores, in the corporate office who are being underpaid, and even an effect on everybody who delivers packages, sorts packages, companies who ship stuff, all of these, there's this massive impact. It's like a halo effect that fast fashion has had on just about every worker on this planet, just about every person on this planet. If we had never gotten into fast fashion in the first place, where would we be right now? What if brands had said 10, 15 years ago, rather than trying to compete to be the cheapest and the fastest and the trendiest, we're going to compete by offering the highest quality product, the best fitting product, the best product in all sizes. What if they had said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to figure out how to finally recycle textiles for real And not really, when we say that, mean chop things up or ship things overseas or dump things in the desert, right? What if they'd really said, we're going to get it together. We're going to do stuff the right way. Instead, all of these brands said, we're going to go cheap. We're going to go fast. And we're going to keep going cheaper and faster. And these companies who find themselves struggling to stay afloat now, I don't have sympathy for them. Because they, they chose that path. And now they're at a crossroads where maybe they could right the ship, where they could slow it down, make better stuff, add the sizes, truth, truly and not in a greenwashing way, commit to circularity. They could do that now. They spent the last 10, 15 years instead trying to sell us gimmicks that made them look like they cared feminist tees and give back programs, you know, who can forget Tom's and then giving away a pair of shoes. Hey guys, they're giving away a pair of shoes because it gets you to buy a pair of shoes, right? Uh, where are all those shoes now? You know, like I just, all the gimmicks that we have been sold over the years when they could have just actually done the right thing. Cause clothes weren't always terrible, my friends. Sure. There's been a long-term issue of clothes, not fitting enough people, but they weren't always as bad as they are right now. And so really, when, cl- when the production of clothing, its longevity, its quality, its sustainability could have been growing this whole time, 
Instead, it went backwards. It went way far backwards. It actually went backwards, but like into another dimension where everything is plastic and horrible and gives us nightmares. So yeah, I wish that the industry had never adopted fast fashion in the first place, but that's that's a lot to wish for. I wish a few years into it, they had said, this game doesn't work. We're ultimately going to lose. And they had adopted sustainability and quality and size inclusivity. I think a lot of those things would be second nature right now. And we would find what it means to buy clothing right now is a totally different proposition. So Megan also asked here, you know, what's the biggest opportunity for brands today to pivot into responsible or sustainable models? I mean, this is a tough one, right? Because our global economy is built upon this idea of more sales every year, more profit every year, growth year after year after year. And that is another reason that clothing has gotten really bad. And just about everything else we buy has lower quality, has shorter planned obsolescence built into it, right? I think if we were going to make a huge shift in how this stuff works. It would have to be a huge global commitment. We're talking every government on this planet holding hands and saying, we're going to focus on degrowth and we're going to take care of the people who are no longer employed by these industries and give them other options of things to do that are just as good, if not better, right? We're going to force, we're going to force the industry to be less wasteful, to stop overproducing, to make products that last longer. We're like, like this would be, it would take the whole world, hand in hand. And I want to believe that that can happen. And there is this part of me that's like, I could see this becoming a bigger and bigger conversation over the next few years, because I think that people with all kinds of different political beliefs, people from all walks of life are starting to see how destructive rampant capitalism has been. This drive to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. It has a major negative impact on the planet and its people. So that's like the overarching things. In terms of more near-term things, I mean, it's going to go back to what I was saying earlier. Brands making that decision right now that rather than going and trying to compete with Shein, they're going to do this new thing, which is do things better, make things that last longer, and invest in truly sustainable technology. Because, wow, let me tell you, over the past few years, Retailers have found ways to sell us stuff faster, to ship things to us even within an even shorter window of time, to get us to check out within seconds so that we don't think about it, to find new ways to make synthetic fabrics be desirable, to, you know, milk all kinds of random trends, to dig into new types of technology for ways to sell us stuff. Okay, cool. What if we took those same genius brains and we figured out how to make clothing fit well, to add more sizes, to truly recycle fabrics, right? That's what I want to see brands do. I want to see them invest in that because I do think we're going to see a lot of fast fashion bankruptcies over the next couple of years. Like they, they, those who choose to try to compete with Shein or stick with what they're doing right now, it is not going to work for them. They need to go this other direction. It's something we talk about a lot all of us who are working on the Fashion Act stuff, like this is the opportunity. This is the time for these brands to turn it around and build real relationships with their customers who will learn to trust them again. So that's what I would like to see happen. You know, last week, uh, really disheartening news. Um, it literally was just announced right before our weekly Fashion Act meeting. A Swedish-based company called Renew Cell 
filed for bankruptcy. And you may not have heard of this company, but they were really leading the way in terms of true fiber to fiber textile recycling. They had opened their f- the first industrial scale factory that did textile to textile recycling, literally would turn old clothes, specifically like t-shirts and denim, into pulp that could be turned into new fabric. It was a really big deal. And it was good fabric because, you know, like fiber to fiber recycling is really, really hard with all of the synthetics. You get weird colors. Some of the dyes just, you can't cover them. So you get these, everything looks weird. They were, they were doing good work here. And this fabric could be turned into lyocell or viscose that would make really amazing clothing for people that would be breathable, non-toxic, and it would save millions and millions. I'm talking like hundreds of millions of trees every year by recycling these clothes into those, those fabrics. So really, really exciting. But they declared bankruptcy last week because, well... It hadn't been as widely adopted by the industry as it could be. Really, really disappointing for all of us. And I I think some people are seeing it as like proof that circularity in fashion can never happen. I refuse to believe that. Um, and I actually think it's good that we're all talking about this because I think it's seeing how, well, there are two things that need to happen. One, governments need to force the fashion industry to adopt circular habits, honestly, circular processes. Um, and, and two, that we as consumers, as activists, as people, we need to tell brands that they need to do stuff like this instead of try to follow Shein. We need to put that pressure on them to choose that better direction. Like, I, I really believe it could save these businesses you know, not that I'm over here like, oh, how sad would it be if like anthropology went away? But y- you know what I mean? Like from a business perspective, if they were asking me for my advice, I'd be like, this is how you have to go. So the problem with Renew Cell is that it just wasn't getting enough orders for fabric to pay its bills, right? Uh, I'm going to share a Fast Company article with you in the show notes that gets you gets you, I think, to understanding what happened in a pretty like straightforward, simple way was written by Adele Peters. And she has a quote in here from Nicole Rycroft, who is founder of Canopy, which is an environmental nonprofit. I have mentioned them here before. And Canopy works within the apparel industry. And she she told Peters, she said, we work with 550 brands that represent a trillion dollars. And I do believe that they are all deeply invested in seeing next-gen solutions come to scale, but we're changing a system that's been in place for 150 years that drives towards economies of scale and low cost. And I think what we've seen here with Renew Cell is that no one had really quite wrapped their mind about what it was going to take to pull something through that was new into a really well-established system. And she is 100% right right now because these all of these fast fashion brands are facing such an existential threat from Shein and company that they feel that they to keep to stay afloat to keep their businesses from going under much less you know that ex- that exponential growth year over year that the economy dictates to keep going they need to go that Shein direction and they need to offer even lower prices, which means they need to get stuff for even cheaper. Now, if 
full fiber to fiber textile recycling was the norm and everybody was doing it. These fabrics would be just as inexpensive as brand new polyester. But that is not the case right now because this is a niche situation. There's literally only one factory that makes it right now. And when you're the only factory with brand new technology, you have to charge a little bit more to keep going. Like you can't offer these low, low prices. Now, if Renew Cell had scaled because they were getting the kind of support from the industry that they needed, bigger orders, they could have opened more and more facilities and the cost would have been driven down. Competitors would have stepped in who could do it for even less money because they theoretically made the process more efficient. And if this became commonplace, the prices would continue to go down and down. But that's not what happened because these brands we're like, we can't place huge orders because we need to compete with Shein. So we need we need the cheap polyester fabric right now. And there was, even though a company like H&M is, is making, you know, millions of garments every year, Zara, same thing, Urban Outfitters, all these companies, millions and millions and millions of garments every year, they were not using these recycled fabrics for any really, I mean, maybe some tiny orders here and there from H and M, Zara, and whatnot. And so, this process of textile text to textile recycling could not scale. And I think this is where it's like, okay, we either need government regulation to force indus- the industry's hand to do this, or we need these brands to realize that they can't be Shein and that they need to go this direction instead. That's going to come from us, pushing for those laws, pushing brands in that direction by telling them that and not shopping from these brands until they get it right. I would say the same exact thing about extended sizing. I'm going to give you one last quote from this Fast Company article, and then we're going to answer another question that is a segue into the sizing issue. So Rycroft, same person from Canopy, she says, it's especially bumpy until there's both critical massive uptake as well as the systems throughout the entire value chain. She says, this sobering moment is almost a call to action for business leaders to align their actions with their commitment, right? You know, I think the thing that this whole thing with Renew Salp made very clear to all of us in this space is that for one, Uh, companies are opting to prioritize low prices. And two, a lot of their sustainability blibbity blah on their websites was just hot air because they weren't putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. 
Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? 
Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. Going back to that last quote I just read, it's especially bumpy until there's both critical massive uptake as well as the systems throughout the entire value chain. Nothing could be truer about extended sizing as well. Lynn asked, please talk about clothing in sizes much larger than usually offered. These impact so many people I love. They can only buy things online because they can't buy local. They often can't even afford kind of garbage clothes unless they put it on clearance. And then when it doesn't fit, they pass it on to somebody else. It's an easy way to grow broke trying to just put clothes on their body. So I will tell you, Lynn asked me for a solution for people who are struggling to find clothes they can afford in their size. And I don't have an answer because there are currently not systems in place to make clothing in larger sizes affordable and accessible and plentiful. And sure, maybe they could try a few brands out. Sure, they could go thrifting maybe, but none of these are guaranteed routes for anyone. And it's really ridiculous to me that in this day and age, it is still so hard for people to find clothes in their sizes. And to me, if we even, you know, we just talked about how these more circular sustainable processes within the industry are just not the norm, right? And part of that, to be fair, is that the question of the environmental impact of the fashion industry has not been a large conversation for very long. And in fact, while you and I might think it's a large conversation, most people have no idea about it. Uh, and I think a big part of that is because it doesn't get the same sort of like environmental, like the same sort of activist and governmental attention because people think clothing is like a women's thing, that it's about shopping, that it doesn't have a big impact, that it's silly, even though, of course, we know everyone wears clothes. Even if you are a nudist, you probably have to wear clothes to like go to the doctor or get on an airplane. Like clothes are a basic human need. And I think we have a lot of work to do, great, just what we wanted, more work. I know, to make people understand that clothes affect everybody, right? And they're a really big deal. And not, I'm not talking about style or fashion, I'm talking about clothing and its impact on the planet, right? But ultimately we can say, 
I digressed here a lot, I know, that the conversation about clothing as an, as an environmental issue and as an ethical issue is newer, right? The question of clothing not fitting people, not being offered in enough sizes, is a decades and decades and decades old problem that could have been fixed a long time ago. And to be fair, we do see more places offering more sizes than they did 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. And this is good. This is pressure working, right? I don't think any of these brands are doing it because, you know, the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because they see financial opportunities. They see lost sales when people walk away and they see it as a PR move. Are they all doing a great job of it? No. But at least they're trying, right? I guess like, you know, trying to be positive here. The thing is, this shouldn't be a new thing because this is not a new conversation, right? I can understand that people didn't understand the impact of the clothing industry until recently because to be to be real, it really started to get out of hand in this century. So it is kind of new. And we didn't know that much about polyesters and plastics and microplastics and all of that stuff until, you know, just a few years ago, because those are relatively new inventions when you compare to the entire time that humans have been around. Making clothes for people of different sizes, recognizing that people are larger than a size 12, uh, that is not a new thing, <laughs> okay? And that's, that's, what, that's highly problematic to me. When I think about why, why don't companies offer inclusive sizing? I, I know there are two reasons, two primary reasons here, okay? One is that it goes back to this idea of critical massive uptake in these systems, right? To make it the norm, right? So that it is easy, and affordable to make clothes in all sizes and it works and people come and buy it and they like it and they're happy with it, right? That hasn't happened because, so for the average business, adding sizes feels risky, right? It costs more money. You have to buy more units, right? You have to get a factory who will make those sizes. In theory, if you want to do a good job, you're going to hire someone to make a pattern for those sizes. You're going to do fittings on those sizes. And you're going to hope that people come and buy the clothes that you made in those sizes so you didn't lose all this money on that. The problem is that brands do try to do this and the stuff doesn't sell and then they back away from it. I've worked places that have done that. Do I think that is okay? No. It happens because these brands don't do a good job of rolling out these sizes, of letting people know that they're there, or they only offer them in three items out of 300, or you can only get them online and not in store, or they don't fit well in the first place. People come and buy them and return them because they suck and they never come back, right? But these brands, they don't see that. They say, oh, People, larger people don't buy clothes. Seriously, I people have said that to me. And rather than like, you know, taking that like sort of critical eye and saying, huh, maybe we like didn't do a good job of rolling out those sizes. Maybe we didn't market them right. Maybe we should put them in stores so people could try them on. Maybe they didn't fit well. Maybe we didn't buy the right quantities. And, 
know, it was the huge Old Navy fail last year when they, I mean, this could have been, it, it makes me so sad actually, because Old Navy offering extended sizes very, like, I want to say they maybe went up to 30, size 30 in women's in all stores in real life, not online is a really big deal. And if that had been successful, um, it would have changed the industry in my opinion, because we would have seen then Gap and Banana Republic doing that. And then, you know, cause sister companies and then ultimately it rolling into the entire mall. Right. But due to some planning mistakes, uh, it didn't work. Uh, people came in and bought the stuff, but there wasn't enough of the sizes they needed. There were too much of the sizes they didn't. And rather than saying, we're going to fix it, we're going to give it time and make it work. They just walked away from it. And this is what I see often because extended sizing has not become the norm and nobody does it well. And then they give up way too fast. And if this had become the norm 20, 30, 40 years ago, we would not even be having this conversation right now. And all of these brands would be doing quite well selling clothing in all sizes. In fact, when I hear about these brands getting their butts kicked by Shein, I, I, I think to myself, wow, well, here's a way you can make a lot more money. Sell stuff in more sizes and make it nice because I know the Shein stuff doesn't fit well. It, the sizing is all over the place, but Shein offers it and that's a win for them. And you're losing because you are too afraid of taking the risk. And instead you'll take what you think is the easier way of just selling stuff for cheaper, right? I don't know how we fix this other than like continuing to harass brands about doing better because it's ridiculous at this point. The places I've worked where I would bring this up and they would just be like, mm, it's too expensive, it's too risky. And it's like, well, someone needs to do it and if we all do it, then it won't be expensive and risky anymore and people will be happier. People will be so much happier and you'll make more money, right? That's what you're here to do, right? You have to have growth year over year over year wanting to do that by offering sizes. So from a business perspective, I know that brands aren't doing it because they're afraid because they've seen someone get burned or they tried it and got burned, but it's always because they did it wrong. So that's one reason. The other reason, which I, I get really hesitant to talk about uh, at too much length because just like my own mental health, you know, I, I have been dealing with disordered eating my entire life and body dysmorphia. And I, I don't like to talk about fat phobia because it, it messes me up, right? It messes me up for days. And I gotten some weird social media messages about my body on Instagram that like live rent free in my brain. Um, interesting when you barely show yourself on the internet when you get messages like that. Here's the thing. I've worked in this industry and it is fat phobic. It is worse than you think it is. Um, I will tell you one of the companies I worked for, um, and trigger warning, if this kind of uh, conversation makes you uncomfortable or is bad for your mental health, I would just fast forward a few minutes here. But I worked for a company where the creative director for the entire huge conglomerate company wouldn't even acknowledge you or look at you if you were over a size six, would ignore you. People would starve themselves to get to the size where then she would smile at you or acknowledge you in public. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I also watched her just eat leaves while we were all eating lunch. And it was, it made me sad because I was like, this could be my future if I don't 
I don't get help, you know? Uh, I, at Nasty Gal, I've talked about this. There was a decision that we would not make tops that fit anyone who wore more than a C cup because it wasn't aesthetically pleasing, which was mortifying for me as a D. Uh, made me feel like I should walk around with books in front of my chest at all times so no one would judge me. I mean, this industry is fat phobic. When I was working for the feminist brand and I wanted to just add uh, 1X and 2X, the CEO was like, well, larger sizes just aren't aspirational. So like, we don't wanna really use imagery of larger people wearing our clothes on the website. What? This is the kind of conversations that I have heard throughout my career. In fact, the only place I worked that wasn't like that was ModCloth. I, I get so sad when I think about what ModCloth is now because back then it was leading the way and really could have normalized uh, extended sizing and pushed the entire industry to follow suit. It really seemed like it was on the just on the precipice of doing that right before it was sold to Walmart. And yeah, the, I don't know how we fix that where this industry thinks that people over a certain size don't need clothes or don't deserve clothes or aren't worth making clothes for. I mean, that's gross, right? Imagine thinking that. The thing is, more people think that than not in this industry. And specifically, it is the people at the top who think this. All the people who I heard say really messed up, fat phobic stuff within my career, they were executives. I didn't hear that kind of stuff coming from my peers. And I do wonder, as we see the generation, the boomers that have been leading the fashion industry for so long retire, and we see Gen X and millennials and eventually Gen Z moving into those roles, could we see a shift? Or has this, all, this toxicity sept seeped into all of them as well? I don't know. But I will tell you that while I still really cope with my own mental health issues around my body, they are so much better since I stopped working within that industry because it is hard. It is hard when you are in a meeting and the stylist says, it's gonna be really hard to make something look cute on someone who's a size eight or a 10. It's really hard to operate within that space. So that's what I have to say about that, Lynn. You know, when I look at both sizing and sustainability, and, you know, actually like the ethics of the supply chain, all of these things would be in a different place if someone had begun to change 10 years ago, even five years ago. But we just haven't seen a lot of real commitment to real progress, just a lot of marketing spin. Maggie, well, actually, this is Maggie Green, the Halloween queen, asked, would love to hear about what you think a positive future for fashion could look like, specifically hope for circularity in the supply chain. This just goes back to everything I've been talking about for the past few minutes, right? Just blathering away about. It means funding textile fiber to fiber recycling. Now, I want to say, fiber to fiber recycling does not mean that we get to overconsume clothing the way we have been. Nope. We have to make changes too, right? And the industry needs to make a change. We're not selling us as much stuff and reliant on selling us as much stuff and hoping for that growth year over year over year. They need to walk away from those, those practices. But if companies could really invest 
in this technology, we would see a huge shift in the kind of fabrics being made and the kind of product we're being offered. My other dream is that brands slow down. I mean, honestly, the cynical capitalist good at business part of me says, hey, brands out there, you know how you can make yourself super special and stand out among all these other brands that you race to the bottom? It's by creating product that fits well and lasts a long time and advertising that because people will show up. I'd like to see that become something that people compete on. Who can have the highest quality, most long-lasting clothing that fits the most people instead of who can sell the cheapest stuff, right? <laughs> that, that's the future that I see. And I also just see this future that has nothing to do with the industry and everything with us, where we know how to make our clothing last, where we learn how to mend and we learn how to do laundry the right way. And we learn that from other members of our community who are excited to teach us that. You know, we share this as a community. We learn these skills and we share them with other people, right? That's one big part of it. And also just changing the way we shop. You know, we're already seeing this massive shift into secondhand, which I... Seriously, when I take a step back and think about it, this is a really big deal to me as someone who was made fun of relentlessly for wearing secondhand clothes as a kid, who my own family was like embarrassed that I bought my clothes at the thrift store. The destigmatization of secondhand clothing is such a massive win. You have no idea. That's a big deal. The fact that that could happen leads me to believe that we can make all these other changes as a community that turn into like big social movements like mending, like laundry, like buying less stuff, like not buying a new outfit for every occasion, like skipping Shein, like all of these things, right? We can make this kind of change if we were able to destigmatize secondhand in the way that we have. And so my future is a, in an industry that cares about and prioritizes making clothes that are high quality, last a long time, and fit people in the most sustainable way possible. And that includes paying everybody a living wage along the way. And on the other side is us as humans buying less stuff and being way happier for it. Success. This is like a little bit more dystopic. It's hard to imagine, but in terms of garment construction and materials, what do you think will be the next new things manufacturers will do to cut costs? What's left to be cut besides paying the workers less or more slave labor? That's a really good question. And it's something that I actually thought about a lot and still think about a lot, but especially when I was working on the new clothes are kind of garbage series, because I was like, what is left? Like, I can't believe how bad clothing has gotten in the past 10 years, but compared to clothes from 20, 30, 50 years ago, it is like extreme. If people in 1980 would be scandalized by our clothes right now, so would the people from the 50s. And I think we saw... I I think we have reached the bottom in terms of quality. It's hard to imagine how much worse it could be. Every time I'm out there thrifting, I am scanning the racks and taking things off and trying them on and getting a feel for like how bad it has gotten. And it's gotten pretty bad, right? I suspect because 
our current economic model, just to say it again, is growth year after year after year after year in both sales and profitability. I suspect that most brands have reached the bottom in terms of how much they can pay for a garment. And we're going to see them cutting costs in other ways, because I also think it's kind of impossible to grow their sales at this point. I think that the industry as a whole has hit peak number of clothes they can sell someone in a year. And so selling more clothes is not the option. Making more money off the clothes that are sold is the is the real option for them. And like I said, I don't think they could cut the cost of making a garment any lower than it already is. But what I think they can do is cut their other expenses. And we're already seeing this play out. How many times have you gone to Target or some other big box store and it feels like there's like two people working there. Yeah, that's because they cut their payroll. They cut everyone's hours. They're trying to run stores on the bare minimum staff. They're doing the same thing in the warehouses and they're doing the same thing in the corporate offices, which I saw playing out during my career. The teams got smaller and smaller and the workload got bigger and bigger. And so I suspect they will continue to shave away how many people work on these teams in these corporate offices. I suspect that they will be using AI to create prints and other design areas. They're they're already using AI to write product copy and emails and do social media posts and so much more. They will continue to cut away these things that humans were doing like those writing product copy, writing emails, writing social media posts, designing prints. Humans have been doing these jobs for years. I suspect we're going to see more and more of that handed over to technology, even to things like photo editing and whatnot. It's going to, people are going to lose their jobs. They're especially in creative roles. Um, I suspect they're going to keep copying more stuff. I bet they're going to use even less designers, even less fit techs. They're going to get rid of fit altogether. And yeah, we're just in those ways, the product will become worse just in terms of like aesthetic value. But I suspect even still in a couple years, they're going to hit a floor with how many jobs they can shave to make the math math. And then And then I don't know what they're going to do, which is once again, why I feel like brands who really want to keep going need to start pivoting into standing for quality, fit, inclusivity, and sustainability, because that's, that's what the real future is. You cannot compete with Shein, you know? Two more questions to finish out the episode. They're not exactly tied together. (laughs) Perhaps that's what ties them together, that they weren't part of any of the other groups of questions. The first one is from Catherine, and she asks, what are your thoughts on purchasing from places like Poshmark? My thoughts on purchasing from places like Poshmark is I love that these platforms exist. When I get really deep into thinking about it. I wonder if they're as equitable as they could be for the people selling their stuff. And I think they really incentivize free shipping and sort of like demanding discounts. I mean, I too know what it's like to to list a pair of $200 jeans for $60 and have someone offer $10, right? And then you're like, okay, so like I would make $1 off of that. But also I guess it depends like what your, what your goal is when you use these platforms, right? What I love about Poshmark, Depop, Mercari, Vinted, eBay, all of these is that one, they make it really easy for people to ensure 
that their unwanted clothes get worn by someone else. And hopefully, maybe even someone else beyond that person who bought it from them. And so it is circularity in action. And I also love that it is very accessible. I I wish the Poshmark search engine were better. Well, I wish all of them had better search functionality. But it is something that anyone can access anywhere. You don't even need a computer. You can use your phone. And it makes shopping secondhand so easy, um, especially if you don't have a car or you don't live in a place where there are good thrift stores or you don't have time because you've got kids or you work a lot or you're tired or what have you. It's easy to find stuff, right, secondhand. And yes, it often is more expensive than going to a thrift store because it serves a different purpose. And I think, once again, it goes back to like, what is your priority? What is your end goal for shopping secondhand online? Are you looking for low prices? Well, they will be lower than buying stuff brand new from stores in most cases. Are you looking for a large selection? Well, that's another great way to find things that, you know, otherwise you'd have to luck into IRL. Um, If you are looking for super low prices, like thrift store prices, you're probably going to be disappointed, right? Although I think ThreadUp gets pretty close. Like that's probably the lowest pricing, although you can find really good deals on Mercari as well. I think that for the most part, these platforms do a pretty good job of making it easier and more accessible and more affordable to shop secondhand. It doesn't always check all those boxes. I don't know how anyone could get rich off of selling secondhand on any of those platforms because free shipping is prioritized. There's so much pressure to give discounts and the platforms take a big cut. In fact, I have issues with all of those. If there were a way to make peer-to-peer secondhand selling more equitable, I would be down for it. And I know that's what the, the ladies at Style Crush are working on. I think that's that's what the future is. That's how these platforms get better because obviously the people running the other platforms are making a lot of money or at least their investors are or are hoping up to. And those platforms may do a good job of serving the shoppers, but they don't do a great job of serving their true customers, which are the people who sell on those platforms because those platforms wouldn't exist if it weren't for the people selling on them. So complicated feelings, but glad that they exist. Seriously, when I need a pair of shoes, I go to Poshmark first. And I can say that I have successfully not bought a brand new pair of sneakers in like four years because I can always find them on Poshmark. And that makes me feel a little bit better because sneakers are like plastic, right? I have a lot of anxiety about that. So there you go. That's my thoughts on Poshmark. Look for your sneakers there. Okay, here's our final question. It's a great one to go out on. Yes, I did plan it this way, although I did not write this question. It's from Jennifer. Is there a good non-pushy way to more actively get other people aware of wanting better clothes? I do visible mending and I sew my own new stuff. That really only signals to people that are already aware. Okay, so Jennifer, I'm gonna tell you, I've been working on Clothes Horse now since 2020. It's been, a, it's been a long path. We're getting close to four years here, actually. And this has been, more than any of the other topics I talk about on the episodes, more than any of the other research I've done, this has been the thing, the question that drives me and makes me think creatively and has me trying a lot of different stuff, which is how can we talk to people about 
why clothes are garbage, why new clothes are garbage, why it's important to shop secondhand, why she and sucks, why there are all these other ethical and environmental issues about the industry that should matter to them. How do we do that without making people feel angry, ashamed, or thinking that we are massive bummers? Um, I promise I'm actually a really good time at a party. <laughs> and I don't talk about this stuff that much unless someone asks me. But it is on my mind. How do we talk to more people? Because Things don't change if we don't talk to more people. We need more people to know what's going on to pressure their elected representatives to push for legislation like the Fashion Act, right? We need more people involved to push on these brands to do better. We need more people involved so they stop buying these clothes and we can break the cycle of overconsumption and this like waste crisis, right? We need more people involved so we can have more people be aware of workers' rights and make this a safer, more equitable place to live, right? We need the people. How do we get them here? You know, when I first started working on Close Horse, uh, you know, it was the same pushback I would hear all the time on Instagram every time I did a post. Uh, it's classist to talk about fast fashion. We know that that's that's just not true, that actually, you know, fast fashion exacerbates economic inequality. Uh, people would say it was fat phobic of me to talk about fast fashion because those are the brands that offer clothing and extended sizing. Yeah, I agree. It, those are the only brands that offer clothing and extended sizing. Here's the question. Does that mean we should support these brands so they, they can continue to offer those sizes, even though, like, you know, these brands are selling subpar products? made with human exploitation? Probably not, right? What we should do is push for a better fashion system that sells high quality, long lasting, good fitting clothing that is made ethically for everyone, for everyone to be able to wear those clothes, right? That would mean they'd have to be accessible from a price perspective and also from a size perspective. You know, like real talk, companies like Shein, or Zara, or H&M, or Walmart, or Target, or anyone really out there, they are not doing a community service by selling you clothing that is inexpensive and theoretically, although all of them, most of them are not actually doing a good job in this if they're trying at all, uh, in your size, right? They are not doing a community service by providing that stuff, and we, we should not support that system. When you need clothes, you need clothes. Buy what you can afford and what will fit you. I totally get that. But there are also plenty of people out there who have the privilege, either financially or size-wise, or perhaps both, that should do not need to be supporting those brands. And in fact, they should be joining the fight to push for all of these brands to do better in all of these regards. And in fact, all of us, regardless of how much money we have, or what size we wear, or where we live, or how old we are, we are all important parts of the slow fashion movement of changing the way this system works, making the system equitable, inclusive, and actually sustainable. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad person if you bought clothes from Shein, right? But what it does mean is that we can buy clothes from Shein when we need them, buy as little as we need and make that stuff last and also fight for a system that does better. And this is the thing about fast fashion, right? Is that 
people will fight you on the internet. <laughs> they will fight for the honor of Sheehan. Or so it feels, right? It seems like they're fighting you, the person who showed up to say the thing about Sheehan or fast fashion as a whole. It feels like they're fighting you. But what they're really fighting is how unfair it all is and how unfair it feels when your only option is filled with all of these problems. You know, what feels like your only option, I guess I would say, is full of all of these problems, right? No one wants to know or think that they are part of genocide, human exploitation, plastic pollution crisis, climate change, all because they just needed a pair of pants that fit them, right? This is where it gets hard. I feel like over the past few years, I've continued to think of new ways to talk to people and to kind of shut down those conversations that are like, oh, you're classist. Oh, you're fat phobic. Last week, someone on threads said that I was ableist when I posted about how Shein literally has dresses for 4 and $5 on its website right now. How does anybody think that makes sense or is okay? And what I really meant was like, how do we feel like people are being paid if dresses are that cheap? And what do we expect to get in the mail? How is how is something being addressed being made for $5 and like it's okay? Like it doesn't have a catch. And someone showed up to say that I was ableist because disabled people deserve cute clothes too and they can only afford Shein. And it's like, no, I understand that. That doesn't mean we should like advocate for Shein. What it means we, sh- we should advocate for the rights of d- disabled people here in the United States and, and globally and have a better, stronger safety net and make it not so hard to get on disability and make the rules not so arcane that you can't get married or have any sort of job at all and that you have to live below the poverty level because you have a disability. Those are the things we should be fighting for, right? Not fighting to stand up for the honor of Sheehan. But I get when people are saying those kinds of things, that that's their pushback. It's that because they don't want, they don't want to be complicit in, in a system of exploitation and waste and pollution, but they don't know what else to do when they need clothes. It sucks, right? It's so unfair. It should make you angry that you have to choose between your values and wearing clothes, right? It should make you angry. So how do I talk to people about this kind of stuff, right? I mean, I think that when people push back in those ways, it is because they are having this very emotional response to like, oh God, no, why does everything have to be so bad? Why can't we have nice things, right? I get that feeling. And so I tend to, when I'm like meeting new people or starting conversations with people, Rather than saying like, oh, have you heard about uh, how terrible fast fashion is and like all the, and then listing all the bad things, you know, the bad things you've listened to this podcast long enough. Instead, I like to meet them where they are and really look for a conversation starter. And believe it or not, in my experience, the best results have come when people have already opened the door by talking about their feelings about shopping or clothing, something that they bought that's disappointing them or making them itchy or smelly or the zipper broke or what have you. Oh, really? Let me tell you about why it's like that. Like, this is so interesting. But like in my career, we started swapping into polyester and like, you know, oh, it's because the zippers, you know, to cut the cost and it's because of returns and free shipping and all these other things. And so like starting to lay that on people that actually like they're getting a really bad deal because the industry's making them these bad clothes, right? And like actually pulling from their their lives. And 
I'm not expecting that we're going to talk for 30 minutes about it and then they're going to walk away like, I'm a member of the slow fashion movement. But what I do think they're going to do is start thinking about this stuff and we'll probably talk about it again and again and they'll talk to more people and they might start looking for content online that tells them more about it. Maybe they'll listen to Clothes Horse. I don't know. But they'll definitely be thinking about it. And that's where it starts because then they're going to start talking to people around them who are going to talk to people around them and it spreads and it spreads. So that's generally where I start with people. So if they're having a concern about something you're wearing or complaint about shopping, that's a great way for me to jump in there. If they're talking about how they went to Target last week and there was like one person working there and the shelves seemed empty except there were a lot of clothes, ah, that's one I love to talk about. I love to talk about how corporations are cutting headcounts so that they can, you know, increase their profits year over year and still cover all the return rates from the low quality product and on and on and on. So meet people where they are and join the conversation organically. Don't come up and be like, hey, that shirt you're wearing, yeah, it's total garbage. It's made of plastic. It's probably made of human with human exploitation. No, no one wants to hear that. And that's not the way it works. It really starts organically. Um, and that's why I think this month's webinar is going to be about how to talk to people about slow fashion, because I think there is a little bit of like finesse to it, but I've been practicing so hard that I have a lot of ideas. And I've also learned how it doesn't work. (laughs) I've learned both. (laughs) Um, anyway, so yeah, if you've had success talking to someone else about why clothes are garbage, why it matters, how fashion impacts the planet, I want to hear from you because our shared successes or failures help us figure out together how to do even better in the future. So yeah, send your stories my way. Anyway, that is all for this week. I just want to remind you all that slow fashion is for everybody. You, me, everyone we know, even people who we think who would never want to be a part of this. And I will tell you, there are many things happening in this world right now that I I just don't know how to fix them. I don't know how I'm a part of it. Sometimes it feels too big. Sometimes it feels like all the things I've tried have meant nothing. I'm sure you have many thoughts about that as well. When it comes to turning fast fashion around, fast everything, right? Changing what we're being sold and how it's being made and all of that, I actually feel like we, me, you, all of us, we can and are making big shifts happen there because I'm seeing these conversations happening in more mainstream outlets. We see the legislation with the Fashion Act, like picking up momentum, and we see brands trying to figure out what the heck to do. In fact, if you have a brand that you love, you should tell them to sign on to the Fashion Act and send them my way and I can talk to them and get them like integrated into what we're doing. I think this year is going to be a pivotal year for us in making a lot of strides towards breaking this system, which, by the way, is interconnected with every other aspect of our lives as well. It has never just been closed. It is not just closed. It never has been. It is so much more than that. And we we have the power to make the change. That's a pretty... It's a pretty exciting thing when you realize that there are so many other things that make you feel so helpless. So let's let's keep this momentum going and let's make some change together this year. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you liked what you're hearing, you know, leave a rating, a review, subscribe, 
tell your friends all the stuff. If you'd like to support my work financially, which I would greatly appreciate, uh, you can check out Patreon. You can buy me a Kofi. You can find that all of this stuff and more in my Instagram profile and on my website, closehorsepodcast.com. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support and being like, sure, we'll do a live episode. That'll be chill. <laughs> Talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.